Hey, uh, well, first of all, I like to say, and I ask people gonna find me, because I want to be a part of this fucking dumb wannabe tennis tour. You know, I think they got their his testicles so far up their mouths that this is bullshit. You know. I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm just thinking about having won the world title and and hopefully trying to win another one someday. You just drop in and just smack the pull back, drop down, say bah. Well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did travel some humongous ways. Oh, cast the paper, please? Oh, that looks good, Alvin. Not bad. Ain't that swell with Jed and Vaughn. Oh, those guys are back! <laughs> Get a haircut. Yes, Shredheads, Waxheads, Kooks and Barneys, welcome to Core Wars. This week on the program, we have... An absolute icon of the shortboard revolution of surfing in its golden age, really. Uh, Stephen Cooney. You might remember him as the first guy ever to surf Uluwatu. He was on that trip with Rusty Miller, with the Hutchison brothers, and with Albie Fauzon. They went there to shoot that incredible sequence in morning of the earth um and he's just put a book out called unearthed which you can get through cyclopsproductions.com.au steve cooney an absolute icon uh, i can't say that word enough he's uh, you know an underground figure in many ways but his imprint on surfing is just tremendous um one of the greatest talents of his era an era in which you know the best surfers in the world were coming out of the northern beaches of sydney uh, he grew up under the tutelage of Nat Young and his brother Butch Cooney, who is an incredible surfer himself. Uh, you know, was a staple of the magazines back in the day. Uh, you know, was a, a confidant of Michael Peterson. Um, obviously, close with Rusty Miller and the rest of the, the Morning of the Earth crew, Terry Fitz, uh, and just yeah, just an interesting life in many ways. Uh, he really resonated with me because he's from the city. You know, he's from Sydney, uh, originally from Granville out in Parramatta there, which, uh, you know, these days is just famous for brutal football players and a big Polynesian community. And, and in those days, it was just fibro houses, very working class, um, suffered some tremendous uh, adversity and tragedy early in life. The family as you'll hear, made it to the northern beaches, and, and that's where the story kind of takes off. But, uh, yeah, just an incredible life. Uh, in very much a product of the big smoke here in Sydney, and, and you'll hear about that in the way it's shaped his eclectic influences and the various pathways he's taken in life, which are pretty atypical of most surfers. But, yeah, you know, he's as, he is as at home in peeling point breaks as he is in the uh, neon-lit back streets of Surrey Hills and King's Cross where all kinds of shenanigans and skullduggery were going down. I had a great time chatting to Steve. Um, you know, perfect way really to bookend the chat with Albie Fauzon, the creator of Morning of the Earth and one of uh, Steve's mentors and employers. And uh, this is all very well timed because it is the 50th anniversary of Morning of the Earth and you can find the remastered film doing the rounds at uh, a cinema near you type it into google and enjoy this chat Isn't 
first of all, uh, yeah, welcome to Ain't That Swell, Steve. It's a pleasure to have you on, mate. Hey, Jed. Nice to be here. Um, now, I couldn't talk to you without bringing up the Pipe Masters, which has been on this week, and, uh, you know, it's just setting the surfing world abuzz. I'm not sure if you've caught much of it, have you? I've caught a little bit, yeah. I saw, I saw um, some waves of Geordie Lawler, uh, which is pretty special, being a North Narrabeen guy. Yeah, well, I was interested to know what you made of the action. Um, I mean, and just I'd love to get your take on it because, uh, you know, you, you've just seen surfing performance come so far in your lifetime, especially with regards to tube riding. Um, you know, yeah, what do you make of where it's at today compared to where it was uh, when you first set foot on the cliffs at Ulu's all those years back? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the uh, And also... Even prior to uh, even prior to being um, on the cliffs at Ulu, like you know, the, the tube riding or tube riding as it was called started was was much earlier that, but it was more like uh, they were surfing just in front of the the, the lip, you know. So the you know it with longer boards and stuff in the old days, um, and um, and it's it's gone from that to the crazy things that they're doing out at pipe uh this morning and um you know so deep uh getting spat out of everything and and uh riding foam balls is, is pretty standard behavior these days i mean to 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 uh to sit on a foam ball um when i was younger was sort of like something that we talked about it and very few people did it you know but now it's now it's just um, pretty standard action, you know, which is um, so pretty pretty incredible. I mean, what they're doing is incredible um, in that sort of surf. I mean, it's great to see them surfing decent waves. Yeah, just remarkable. I mean, we're seeing guys backdoor, you know, take off behind the peak at Pipeline on 12 to 15-foot waves, knifing the drop, like under the, under the ledge takeoffs on waves that are just like a two-, three-storey building. It's just crazy, and it's only you know you're still super relevant, um, and and you're not that old. So like, it's just crazy how far surfing's come in such a short amount of time. I can only wonder uh, where it's going to go in the next fifty years. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty interesting. Um, I mean, the aerial component uh, is is changed surfing a lot, and um, and it's uh, but and and that's why it's so enjoyable to watch watch. Um, watch a contest that's held in decent waves, you know, with, with barrels that they can get and, um, and you know, really, really push themselves to the limit. And the, the equipment, you know, there's a lot of, lot of unbelievable uh, developments that have happened in equipment as well. Like the, it's just gone from, you know, like, you know, one board a, one board a year, you know, which is what, how I grew up, if, if you were lucky. And then um, uh, to, the, to this, you know, and now they're, now guys are riding, you know, any number of crafts and they've got, you know, plenty of them. Yeah. And they're just developing all the time. Yeah. Totally, yeah. I mean, we're talking like 100-plus crafts a year and refined to the point of absolute science. Uh, was Hawaii somewhere you spent much time? I didn't go there. No. no. I, I almost went there. I actually had a board made by Outer Island. It was at like eight feet. And um, you know, concave, typical outer island surfboard, and um, and because I was due to go there, I was accepted into an event over there. Uh, this was, you know, like in the uh, we're talking 
um, early 80s, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, it was when I was working at track. So it was, no, it was in the 70s. Um, and, um, and so I had a board made to leave um, and um, it just didn't eventuate. Um, so, um, yeah, so I didn't get there. I, I would have liked to have gone and I would have loved to have gone. Um, I, was, I was ready for it at that, that age. Um, but unfortunately, no, didn't get there. Oh, well, far out. Uh, just all you probably missed was a fucking good old-fashioned hiding from one of the boys, the kind. <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, the Aussies got themselves into a nice bit of strife with the, with the locals, and um, I'm glad I missed all that. <laughs> I probably would have I would have tried to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, you know, it yeah. Is their, it, is their, it is their turf, and uh, they're very protective and, and, and plenty of localism going on, so... I don't know if you, why you'd poke them. I mean, it's like, why do you poke a bear? Yeah. yeah, I mean, we'll get into that a bit later because you would have been working at tracks when all that busting down the door stuff was going on. But uh, mm. we'll get to that in a bit because, uh, yeah, mate, we're here to talk about your life uh, and in particular a book you've just released on it, um, a memoir. And uh, one of the things I really love about this book and your life in general is just how eclectic it all is. Like there's twists and turns in here that, you just don't see coming like bizarre shit. And uh, in many ways you really reflect what it's like to be a surfer from a major city uh, in this case, Sydney, like at points, you know, you're dipping into the country soul, North coast farm shack lifestyle, but then you're just as home amidst the the neon lights and ladies of the night in, in Kings cross and Surrey Hills. Were you conscious of having one foot in a few different worlds? Um, yeah, it was, it, it was interesting. Um, a number of reasons for the, the like my, I grew up in in Sydney, and and my roots were here, and and I, I did all Morning of the Earth when I was very very young. So my, you know, I automatically would come home. You know, like you'd come back to Sydney, and so initially it was like um, there was no way I could support myself up in the country when we're doing Morning of the Earth. I couldn't, you know, like so. Um, there was long stretches I spent up there and, you know, and I, I really did spend a lot of time on the North Coast and, and it just happened like, you know, people just chucking me in the car and taking me away and all that sort of stuff, you know. And um, But, yeah, it's, it's interesting because when I uh, – it's a good question. When I, um, when, I, when I sort of basically ended up starting to work um, – uh, you know, which was essential um, not long after I came back from Morning of the Earth. Um, it was a, I, for how, how it happened was that an old friend from Midstone Board Riders uh, ran into me one day and said, what are you doing? Uh, do you, you know, do you need a job? And I said, well, yeah, I do actually. And he, and he, and he, um, he invited me to go and work in the middle of Pitt Street uh, selling jeans. So it, it was... Um, because I was in the Midstone Board Riders uh, when I was quite young, when I was about 10 or 12, and he knew me from there. And um, so anyway, I ended up, my first real job was was pretty much uh, after Morning of the Earth was was um, working in January, and that was in the middle of Pitt Street, and that was that was pretty eye-opening. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the middle of the city. I didn't spend much time in the city prior to that. Um, I spent it out at Narrabeen and, you know, on the northern beaches. So... Um, get, getting that sort of, um, and we're working with, um, you know, clothing type people and, and, you know, pretty social sort of people. And, and they, um, you know, they were, they were pretty, pretty 
crazy crew. They were, they were good fun to be with, and they, and you know, they showed me a few things, and it was um, it was a good time. And that um, yeah, did did eleven or twelve months there, and um, you know, it all it all ended, and back to the northern back to the northern beaches. You see, I go back to the northern beaches, and um, and um, then when I started working on tracks, which was the reason I got back to the northern beaches. Um, again, it was a working cycle. It was, um, it was, and then I was, I was actually travelling quite a little, a lot around, particularly around Sydney, and uh, like working on the on ads and that sort of stuff. And it was introducing me to a whole different, um, a whole different set of skills. Um, and so with that, I just it, you sort of just adapt. I mean, through my whole life, I've had to basically adapt uh, to my situation, and if if I need to do something different to support myself and and to uh, and to make ends meet, well, I just do it, you know. And um, that includes living in the city later on. So uh, with a with a son and a, and and a wife. So yeah, it, it it life takes different. You know, not everyone. Well, particularly then, not everyone could uh, just live on the north coast and and go surfing. It just wasn't possible. No. It's just such a surreal transition, you know, going from being the first to ever surf Ulu's and racetrack, and then the next minute you're working in Pitt Street in the middle of the Sydney CBD. Like you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't big, be big contrast. Well, <laughs> yeah. also, also just the. I mean, I felt like I was living on the north coast uh, prior to that, and prior to making Morning of the Earth. I mean, uh, or we were shooting Morning of the Earth, you know, a, a fair. A fair bit of time prior to it coming out, so um, and and it was, yeah, it was um, it it it's just a contrast, you know. It's just a contrast. You just adapt, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. You you did have to adapt many times in your life, starting at a very young age um, when tragedy mm-hmm. struck your family. Uh, I understand your father suffered a, a terrible accident that left him with a, a fractured skull and a pretty uh, serious brain injury. And he'd, he'd later take his life. Um, pro- you know, you'd have to say as a result of that, um, which strikes a chord with this program, actually, we uh, lost someone very close to the program in, in very similar circumstances uh, halfway through last year, uh, a serious brain injury, and then uh, leading in a roundabout way to um, suicide and, you know, even myself, I've, I've had a good 12 uh, head injuries ranging from fractured skull to broken jaw and, and whatnot just from playing football and getting up to no good in uh, the eastern suburbs in South Sydney growing up. So it definitely resonates. But um, I, I'd be interested to know what sort of an imprint did your, your father's accident and premature death uh, leave on you and the rest of the family? Well, yeah, perhaps more on, on the rest of my family. See, I was five months old when that happened, when he, when he took his own life. And um, so, and I was a family of six kids, um, and so I never actually met him. You know, I never, I never actually bonded with him. I don't think, and um, and all I knew that he just wasn't around. And so, when we moved to Collaroy, it was really just. Um, and when I was growing up, as I grew up, it was just normal for me not to have a father. Um, and the people around me, all the surfers and stuff, uh, they were like my surrogates. You know, they were like. You know, larger, larger than larger than life characters, and they they used to take me under their wing. And you know, my brother had a whole lot of friends, and my brother played a big part in 
being a father figure. Um, and um, so I didn't really know him. And what the scars on me were, I just don't know that they were that that hard. I mean, I think on the older ones, I think it was very difficult, the other children. Um, I think they must have suffered, although my family's not really one of the families that actually sit around and talk about all this stuff, and, and in those days nobody talked about it. Uh, suicide had a, had a, a very um, a large stigma, you know, like a pretty heavy stigma. You know, nobody talked about it. You kept it under closed doors. You don't talk about it. You just get on with it and um, and forget that it happened, you know. And so, yeah, so I think it would, I think it w- would have affected my older siblings much more than it than, than it did me because they knew him and um and I didn't um and so I was just used to the idea of there being older guys around me you know and uh and they were like my father figures and uh fortunately they were, they were mostly surface so you know the and now a lot of them were really good ones so um that's where my training in surfing came from yeah, we'll get to a few of those older mentors in a second. But uh, before we do, I mean, what was life like uh, in your family after that? Because just it blows my mind, you know, what, six kids to a single mum is mind-melting. Yeah. Like, I couldn't imagine uh, how difficult that would have been, how uh, there must have, the amount of stress, there must have been a level of poverty that came with that. Um, yeah, I mean, what was life like? growing up uh, in the in the Cooney household? Yeah, it was, well, the, particularly when we moved to, uh, you see, it's where my memory clicks in and that's that's really the house at at, um, at Long Reef, uh, which had eight bedrooms down one side um, and uh, which is still there and it's now a guest house. But um, I, think, I think what happened is mum, moved down there to get away from the stigma of of Granville where where she uh where this happened where my father's accident happened and um so I the grandfather her father um grandfather Davies he he um he got a set up in a, in a in that house um with a view to um to you know try to make a go of things there on her own um, but he was, as I remember him, he was very supportive of mum. So he was, he was around, and he he wouldn't let anything happen to her. Um, you know, uh, financially, I think he was helping her financially as well. Even though mum, her entire life worked, or she, um, and and you know, it was, it would have been very very difficult for her. Um, it would, I you know, I, I realise it much more now, and particularly since I've written the book. Uh, just how difficult it would have been for her, and she was one of these people. She's very bubbly. She's very, very social. Uh, she always appeared to be happy. And as a young kid, you sort of you don't really pick up on on subtle signals. You just you just get on with life as it is around your mother and and um, your your older siblings. And you know it, it was. Um, but I, I have no doubt. I mean, suicide cannot possibly not have an effect on you. Uh, in, when it's in your family, and so yeah, I, I'm sure that it was a pretty big. Now I've researched it a lot more. Um, it, it, it's um, uh, it would have been a, a really big transition to move from Granville down to uh, down to Collaroy and be isolated more or less like that into a 
a new a new town, new city, new environment, um, and um, and you know I'm sure that she had did did it tough. You know, I'm sure she did it tough. You know, for for quite a while. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, but she never sort of really let me know that she. I think she and she tried not to. I think I think she tried to shield the kids. She was very protective of the kids, so she tried to shield them as much as possible. Mm, mm. So you moved from Granville to Collaroy and obviously surfing becomes a massive part of your life. Your older brother, Butch, incredible talent. Um, you know, as good as any of those guys from that era, pretty much like Matt Young was a guy from Collaroy uh, that you grew up, you know, you grew up in Nat's shadow. Where did surfing fit into that picture of life for you uh, early on? You know, was it, uh, was it an escape? Was it a, a source of just incredible joy given, you know, the, it was just a daily process, daily process of the day. It was like um, that's that's what was happening in that area. Um, it was you know, Collaroy Boardwriters epicenter of uh, epicenter of the of the the club scene in Sydney for uh, at that period. That was one of the strongest clubs in in Sydney, um, and um, you know it was just like there was every other weekend. There's a contest down at Long Reef or down at Manly or. Um, and so my life really was very dominated by surfing um, at a very early age and, and everyone around me, you know, um, the house was full of surfers, um, the eight bedrooms down the side was available to, to the people working in the Brookvale factories and, and there was always sanders, glasses, um, you know, uh, people involved in the, in the surfing industry staying with us and, um, or visiting us, you know. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of people that well, you wouldn't know their names, but a lot of people, you know, who who were really influential in the um, in the surfing industry at the time. So it was just a natural thing, and just that's the way I grew up. It wasn't um, something that I even thought about. I thought I don't I don't get up in the morning to do anything other than um, go surfing, and I was in a great position. I had had. Um, it sits right between Collaroy and, and Long Reef and with um, with Dewey Point down the road. So for me, it was just grab your board and walk across the golf course, go for surf and spend your day down the beach instead of instead of hanging around under your mum's feet, you know. And uh, you come home, you get fed and do it again the next day. It's like it, that's just the way it was, you know. Obviously go to school, uh, but you eventually that, that was... There was I was very reluctant to do that. So <laughs> even so, <laughs> so so it was just a natural thing. Like and all I ever wanted to do was um, be like my brother. I really did. I really wanted to be like my brother. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned yeah, Collaroy was the you know the epicenter of the club scene, and the Northern Beaches was the epicenter of the high performance surf and shaping scene for the whole planet at that time. Um, so that means you know. You grew up in the shadow of Nat Young, a midget, uh, your brother Butch, you know, tons of others. But yeah, what was your relationship like with Nat? Oh, he was great. He was like he was great. He, he very good friends with my brother, you know, and um, and he, he was he was really um, supportive in the water, out of the water. You know, it was like um, he, he was sort of like a, you know, for for that that early period, he was, he was sort of like a surrogate family member. He was, he was you know. We'd see him every day or every second day, you know. It was like, and he'd, he'd hang in the house and, you know, spend time with Butch and, you know, when you've got people like 
Wayne Lynch and Ted Spencer and those sorts of people calling in, you know, just meet at the Coonfish place, you know, just meet at, meet at the house, meet at the, you know, at 997. And, um, you know, and they did. That's that's what they did a lot and they, you know, they'd plan the contests and, they'd, um, and, and, you know, the house was pretty social. Like, you know, there was quite a few parties and, you know, and, and get-togethers and things like that. So, you know, barbecues, things like that. So, so, but it was always, you know, it's always our surrogate family. Yeah, unreal, unreal. And your brother Butch, as I mentioned, as good as any of those guys from that era. How did his journey shape yours? His surfing journey, sorry. How did his surfing journey shape yours? Oh, I mean, Butch, Butch really, I think he was in this in the position of having to drag me around with him when he went surfing, you know, so... I was just the grommet that that that, was, that tagged along, you know, and I'm sure at points it was quite annoying for him. But um, you know, he he you know ultimately he he um, he taught me a lot of what I learned in regards to the um, etiquette in the water, uh, what works and what doesn't work in the water, um, how the surfboard industry works, um, how to get deeper barrels, how to you know how to really um, his his big thing was barrels, you know, and uh, so pretty early we were surfing alone, like with with Butch and and I. We'd pick the or he'd pick the times, and he'd drag me out there, and it, we'd be surfing car park rights on our own. It would be perfect, you know. Wow. And because um, not a lot of people surfed it in those days, they thought it was just a closeout. So you know, and it, and it turned out it was. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot more a closeout now than it than it, than it, than it was, yeah. Uh, so yeah, but it, you know, so when you answer the question, yeah, um, he he had a he had a huge influence on on my approach to surfing, you know. Yeah, and I mean, fire out the the names that you rub shoulders with are endless, but particularly in that formative period. Um, you know, the likes of Michael Peterson was a guy you spent heaps of time with, heaps of time in the bay with. Uh, what are your memories of the great MP? Oh, Michael. Michael was one of those characters. Like he, Because I was a couple of years old, younger than him, he uh, didn't really see me as a threat because I'm not going to get in a contest with him. You know, I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm not going to be in a, in a surfing contest with him. I'm going to be sort of out of the bracket. And, um, and even if I did get into his bracket, I wouldn't be a threat, you know, so it was... Um, from a really early age, um, oh, you know, I'm talking like that. Oh, from about 12 or something like that. Yeah, I've got a new Michael. Uh, and uh, we met, you know, when we're travelling, when I was travelling up the coast and doing things, you know, like we'd run into each other. Um, and we just got to know each other and we seemed to sort of get on all right and... Um, and the more more time I spent up the Gold Coast, we'd go into his shaping bay at, um, and and you know we'd just talk and you know and I, I never I was never a pushy uh, I was never very pushy with people I, I just sort of used to listen a lot, and um, and um, he liked that you know he, he didn't mind talking if you were prepared to listen, um, and he was a pretty solitary sort of guy so he didn't uh, you know he he was. In, in the right environment and, and at the right time, he was actually a really nice person. But other people might tell you differently, you know, like he was, he was very competitive. Um, and I sort of liked that about him as well. He, he used to psych people out and do that sort of stuff in contests. And, um, you know, he, he really, um, 
he really worked hard at his he worked hard at his image and worked hard at hard at his surfing and and you know it's, so I, I I quite like Michael he was just a character there's not enough characters you know in in well there's a lot of characters in the surfing but you know the early characters are, are probably more unusual than others yeah i mean surfing was just such an out there pursuit in those days obviously no money in it and uh you know it's almost like the thing i think most people love about that era is just that the the characters was, was so rich and you had to be so robust to to survive in uh, and be, and surf for a living not surf for a living but just fucking make a lifestyle out of surfing somehow you just had to be such a robust character you know everyone's making their own boards um, so like styles and, and characters become fused in this, you know, really interesting way and board design, it all gets rolled up into kind of one, uh, cosmic entity. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think of the guys, uh, that you were surfing and, and traveling alongside of, and they're just the absolute icons, you know, they're absolute icons. They're, they're, they'll be viewed upon as, as gods, uh, in, in 50 or a hundred years, if surfing's still around, if this planet's still around, I mean, guys like terry fitz like what sort of a character was he not oh, terry you know again you know I, I think in surfing you had to be fairly respectful and, and understanding of and he was again an older an older character in my life um but i think there was a there was a rule i mean if you were younger you really just kept your mouth shut you know and and, and just sort of whatever was happening you know you know but most of the stuff that that happened was all in in learning, you know. They they they, they surfers taught people uh, how to be, or you know, they used to teach teach each other how to be staunch, how to do the right thing in the water, how to take care of their brothers, you know, their surfing brothers. And uh, and Terry was not dissimilar, but he was he was more. Terry was a driven person, and he and he he really wanted to he really wanted to make a success out of hot putted surfboards or whatever he was doing and and so he spent a lot of time you know he, he was he was in in his he was hard at work you know he was hard at work shaping and and honing his craft in a way and and doing all that sort of stuff and um but um he was also um a component of morning of the earth so i ended up spending a lot of you know a lot of time surfing with him and seeing him in contests and that and then of course the time I spent at, at North Narrabeen board riders, he was he was and he was just a he was just part of the fabric, and uh, and you know very impressionable. I mean, he was you know he really was uh, you know he did he did he did have a he did have a strong character as well. You know, so um, you know we all got I always got on well with him, and and you know I still I still do when I talk to him. He's you know I still have a chat with him, and he's um, he's still the same Terry. He's great. I mean, I, I've never had a run in with Terry, you know. It's, uh, but I've never really, uh, I've never asked to. I've never, I've never, I've never actually desired to. And it's like all those older guys. I, I never desired. I always wanted them to, to, to know that I respect them. Sure, sure. Savvy, smart. Uh, and at 15 years old, you know, you get the call up to go to Bali with Albie Fowles on uh, Paul and Jeff Hutchison and, and Rusty Miller to film for Morning of the Earth. Um, do you remember where you were when you got that news and what your immediate reaction was? Uh, it was no, it was a sort, sort of um, slow build-up. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was, I'd been 
traveling with Albie quite a lot up the north coast and to to Victoria and those sorts of areas and um you know I was spending I was spending a lot of time um you know on the road with them and stuff like that and 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 like it was it was just sort you know you know do you want to come and you know it's like in the end it was just a conversation with mum and I I didn't even think about where Bali was. I mean, Albie was just going on another trip, so it was like going up the coast. You know, he said, do you want to come? And I went, yeah, of course I want to come, you know. And uh, how long are we going for? Six weeks. I went, fantastic. Yeah, great. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> you know, but it was sort of a thing that was boiling along, you know. It was, it was a preparatory thing, you know. So, so um, yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I was quite happy to go and I'd been surfing my brains out, so I wasn't worried about what I had in front of me. So, yeah, great, yeah. yeah. And mum was very supportive of the, of the whole exercise, so it was good. Jeez, I bet you realised pretty quick that it wasn't the North Coast when you stepped off that plane in Bali for the first time. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it, was a, it was definitely a, a, a um, contrast. Yeah, it was very humid, um, very different culture, so it was a culture shock and the religious factor and the, and the, the Hindu religion and the temples and the... You know, it was all it was all a lot to take in, and but I've always maintained that my mindset on it was not too. I didn't really get that distracted with it. I mean, the heat got to me. I mean, it was it was hard yakka getting around, uh, not much air conditioning in the place at, at that stage, and um, and so you really cooked by the time you got out to Ulu and stuff. By the time you work, walked in, you're pretty cooked, you know. And and um, but there's the whole environment. I was walking around thinking, so where are we going surfing today? You know, and that, you know, like I was 15 years old and all I wanted to do was surf. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm thinking, where am I going to surf? And so first place we land is Kuta and Kuta Beach is not particularly known for in, insane waves, you know, particularly the, the waves I'd been surfing on the north coast that, you know, was, you know, while they're slightly different waves, but they're, you know, after coming off the, you know, some good runs on the north coast. I was I was ready for something a bit bigger. So it was um so yeah, so I didn't really well yeah, I just I was just and with Paul Hutcho, we were just talking about boards and surfing and all that sort of stuff. It was it was really not in my head to do anything other than, than go surfing and whatever was happening around me, it was always my main consideration. You know, I enjoyed and and I really loved the people of Bali. You know, I really loved, even at that age, you know, I was I was trying my best to pick up some Bahasa Indonesian and, um, you know, I'd stumble around with them and they'd, they'd find that really funny. And, and um, But I did pick up a bit and, you know, about halfway through the trip they started to understand that I was saying, you know, this or that, you know, not much but this or that, you know. And um, so, yeah, yeah, so it was it was. It was like a little fantasy world, you know. I, I was just, I was just there going surfing, you know. I wasn't, I wasn't too caught up in all of that, in any of the too much of the cultural thing or anything like that. Yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? When you're on your first kind of uh, international surf trip, you, everything's just an obstacle <laughs> between you and the surf. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, a, you know, it's a means to an end. You know, you know that you've got to go through it, and you know, and it's if it's a BMO ride. Yeah, you know, up to up to you know a really bad BMO ride up to up to Ulu, and walking with boards to get good waves. Well, I'm up for it. Yeah, 
Kuta, Kuta's, you know, <coughs> Kuta Reef was fun prior to going to Wulu, um, but it still it was a softer wave, and, and I was ready for something more than 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 um, than Kuta Beach and and, and uh, Kuta Reef. So I was happy to to go a bit further afield. Yeah, you got something more plus some. Uh, talk us through it. You're the first person to ever surf Ulu's. Um, you know, just talk us through that first mission out there. Yeah, the first. Um, well, it was yeah, like the the first time I went out there. It was um, it was on one of the you know it was a smaller days. It was a, a, a smaller day, and um, you know we shot some footage while we were there and. Um, but if you're talking about the bigger day, that's a whole different. That's a whole different well, ballgame. Let's just. Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting to me. Um, just even being able to identify a wave that hasn't been ridden before, and, and it's all part of it. Rocking up there when it's small, you still have to be able to kind of mind surf it and and see the potential of the spot. Um, I mean, talk us through, yeah, just finding your way up to that place, like how you even knew it existed, and also. Um, you know, yeah, just the mental process of, of of beginning to to see that it was you know a potential world class surf break. Yeah, well, I didn't even regard it that way. I didn't I didn't regard it in global terms. I I just regarded it as what was in front of me. And and the reef the reef was was awesome. I mean, I that's the first time I've seen a a coral reef that big. You know, but um, there were some aspects of it that I could I could put my head around. I mean. I've been used to picking my way through um, through the the stuff around Sydney, um, like uh, the, the the headlands around Sydney that has you know that, that not so much coral reef, but it has rock reef, and um, it sort of behaves in a similar way. Um, it you know it sucks and it moves and it does this stuff, and you've got to you've got to deal with the with the um, with the drag and the and you know, getting moved around and, and where the best place is to paddle out. Uh, Butch was very strategic about that, where to paddle out, even on beach breaks. Um, knew a lot about that, you know, the, about rips and and taught me a lot about it. Um, and so it was always, as Butch used to tell me, sit and look at it for a while. Don't, don't just jump in the water. You've got to, you know, have, sit down and have a good look at it, you know, and just see where, see what the water's doing. See where there's an out. See where you, where you can get out the easiest possible route, you know. And Ulu offered that. Um, there was a keyhole. It was a long walk up the. It was a fair fair way up the up the reef. Um, <clears throat> so there was a keyhole where it, it, when the tide started to move out, um, it would it would suck you out and and put you out to the to the to the liner, to the back of the liner, um, and not dissimilar to some of the places I've surfed around here and you know in Australia, uh, where the where there's it's critical on on when you paddle, how you paddle, um, and you know, and you just need to pick up that knowledge before you start hitting water. So, yeah, so it was just you know part of, part process of elimination. You know, that's not a good place to paddle out. Well, and that one looks like a much better one. You know, it's just you just process it and then get out there. The getting trying to get your uh, trying to get the takeoff point at Ulu was was something we had to work on because it um because it, did, it does shift and it changes with tide and stuff like that. But um, when you're looking at it 
from outside the break, from, from out in the water, and you're looking towards Zulu, it's quite difficult to pick a landmark that you can sit on, you know. And I'm, I'm always used to doing that, you know, particularly beaches on wooden beaches. You, know, you pick up a tree and you, and you can pretty much sit off it and, and you know, okay, that's when the next, where the next wave is going to happen, you know. Whereas with Zulu, that's not quite the same, you know, and it's um, you really have to start, you really need to just ride a few waves and then uh, get, a, get a bearing on it um, and I think more follow the, the you know, follow the, where, the, where the reef's sucking, you know, and uh, you can see it, you can see it um, shallowing out and you can see where the points are on the reef. Uh, there isn't too many on early. There's, there's a couple of takeoffs. Um, so it just took a while to find those, yeah. you know, from, particularly from the back of the wave. Yeah. How long until uh, you guys scored that really big session, the iconic one in Morning of the Earth? It's you and Rusty Miller, no leg ropes. It's, uh, I don't know how big it is. You'd probably call it eight foot or something like that. But, um, I mean... How long between discovering the joint and, and, and that session had transpired and, and talk us through that session that morning or, or afternoon, whatever it was? Well, my memory of it is that we, we went out there, we did a day out there, which was the small day I was talking about just a minute ago, and then, and then we came back out a bit more prepared and we brought, and Rusty was there and, and, the, um, and the plan was to stay overnight. So um, it, mean, it means we had a, like pretty much a couple of days to, to sort of sort things out. And when we did, and so when we did go back more organised, you know, with a bit of food and um, that sort of thing, it just a bit more sun protection. Um, not sunscreen, there was no sunscreen. <laughs> a bit more like a hat. We got a hat, yeah. So... Um, what about the sunburn? How fierce was yeah, it? You guys must have got bloody scorched. Yeah, well, we did. Yeah, I mean, on the paddle, you, the salt dries on your back. It doesn't. It doesn't. You don't stay wet when you're paddling. It's like just dries on your back. Yeah. So, yeah. So it did get scorched. That was the heat was probably one of the most. Um, um, and you know, one one of the things I noticed most about the place. Yeah, but um. Anyway, when we when we arrived, it was um. When we arrived, it was it, it wasn't huge. When we arrived, um, it wasn't as if it was just peeling off perfect at, at eight feet when we arrived because it does have a bit of morning sickness, if you like, uh, when the tide's halfy half and you know and it's moving around. But we could see that the swell was bigger, and then uh, more more into the day. Um, it it really picked up and cleaned up, and the offshore picked up, and um, so that's when it really started to crank. So yeah, so we had a, a little while to check it out and watch it watch it come up and and um, start doing its thing. Mm. And how instructive was Rusty in that process? Uh, I mean, he's a bit older than you. He's a you know he's familiar with the waves of Hawaii and that kind of big ocean energy. Um, you know, you're a grom from the east coast. Was he helpful? What What was the conversation? What was the chat uh, leading up to that session? You must have been shitting bricks. Yeah, well, Rusty, Rusty, uh, uh, particularly on the big day, yeah, it was great to have Rusty's company. He he, um, he comes, you know, he surfed Hawaii. He's like very experienced, you know, and he's very always very communicative. He he talks a lot, and he's you know, and and how's this going? And you know, 
And um, so, yeah, he was he was really supportive during the course of the whole trip and, and really, you know, he's a frother. He, love, he loves, loves surfing. And, um, so when you're surfing with him, it's no different. He, he's there, he's, you know, and he's, um, you know, and, he, and he's, we were picking spots, you know, I don't know the exact conversations too long, long ago now, but we just, yeah, we just walked out there together, found the best place, which ended up being the keyhole, which was further up. And um, and you know floated out there and picked our picked our our paddling time as I was told when I was a kid. Uh, don't don't go on the first wave of the set. <laughs> you know, <laughs> try and paddle out through the last wave of the set, and then you'll miss the next set. You know, so it's all that sort of stuff. Just common sense when you're when you're a surfer. Sure, sure. Um, and and no leggies, man. Like you know, what are the challenges? It's, it's a fucking bizarre foreign concept to even consider surfing uh waves of that size in a completely foreign location on the sort of equipment that you're riding and no leg ropes yeah it's, it's a common one well we've never never had leg ropes so we didn't think it was anything different you know like, <laughs> like, <laughs> they didn't be created then <laughs> so it was just normal and and you know the bigger it got uh probably a little bit more cautious you were about if you're fall, you know falling off, I mean, you know, leg ropes have given people a lot of protection, like they, a lot of self confidence. In if they if they get snuffed out, they will, you know, it doesn't matter. I still got my board. I can paddle back out. Um, I did get caught one time out there um, during that that session, and um, and I did make a mistake, and I and I didn't get out quick enough, and. Um, it was a long swim, like it was a really long swim, and um, <laughs> and it took me way down past the cave, and and it was, and then it, by then the tide was half tide, so it was washing up against the cliff, and so I had to go and get my board, and then you know it was it was a it was a haul, but luckily it was it was a bit later in the day, so it was I was ready to come in anyway, but um yeah it it, it the leg leg rope thing is it that's just the way it was it was yeah. wasn't anything different. Yeah. It, it's worth keeping uh it's worth our listeners keeping in mind though as well because i mean it, it must also just change your approach to surfing and riding the wave it's got to be a, a bit more of a uh, uh well i don't know how you maybe you could explain it. i've never i mean I've, the times i've surfed about a leg rope it's uh yeah you obviously don't want to lose your board so you're a bit more risk averse uh, a bit more conservative uh in your approach but yeah maybe you can talk us through uh how leg ropes change performance surfing um, yeah, well, I use a leg rope myself, so I, I, I suppose I should know the answer to that question. Um, but, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's helped in regards to um, wave count and in regards to um, performance in a, in a sense because they're taking more risks with leg ropes on. Uh, so they're getting deeper. Uh, they're trying harder. It doesn't really have much impact if they lose their board. Um, you know, so, so I think it's done some good for, you know, and it, and it certainly does save you a lot of, a lot of swimming, you know, so it, it's, well, it was just the development that happened. I saw it happening when, you know, up at Angari, the, uh, Gordon Merchant was, was, um, had a, had a piece of rope tied to the back of his board and he was holding it in one hand as he surfed backhand and get big Angari, you know, and, and it was tied to his, tied to his leg. Um, wow. Which was the first, yeah, 
which was the first time I'd ever seen a leg. Yeah, anyone. It wasn't even called a leg rope then. I mean, it was just called a, a piece of rope. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd seen it developing, but I was a, I was a little bit reticent at first. I didn't really like the idea, um, and so it took me a while to get used to the fact leg ropes are okay. And so, you know, I adopted it, but I think it has has spawned um, not only. It has helped with the crowds. I mean, more people surf because, you know, not so much just because of leg ropes, but leg ropes has made it a lot easier for people. Uh, it's helped a lot of people be able to surf, to be able to be in the water. In the old days, <coughs> basically, if you couldn't paddle out and, and do something decent on a wave, you, you probably wouldn't be out there. You know? Now there's quite a lot of people who paddle out and don't really know what they're doing and they're, they're out there because they've got a leg rope. So thing. yeah, so but performance-wise, there is there is a plus. Back to Bali. Um, just quickly, I've got to touch on this because it's my favourite scene in the film, uh, or one of them. But uh, and you actually provided a bit of colour, a bit of backstory to it. Uh, there's this incredible scene in the film where, in the film Morning of the Earth, where uh, you and a, I don't know if it's you, but some of your your crew and all the Barlows, you're all sitting in a cave and you're ripping chillums. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, how good's this? Like, um, you know, passing the peace pipe, uh, you know, there's this kind of cultural uh, coming together um, as, you know, we, me and my mates do, uh, do the same thing today. But uh, I guess what was interesting to that is that you guys actually introduced the, the Barlows to chillums and and pot and and the story about how that came to be is fucking one of the <laughs> funniest ones in the book. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 yeah, like, however it happened. I mean, we we ended up with chillums and we ended up with pot and we ended up out there. Um, and, and the um, and yeah, I don't recall myself giving the Barlows a chillum, but and I'm not sure who did because. It's a long time ago, and um, you know we're all just a crew and a group, and yeah, there were chillums and it was pot for sure, and uh, the Barlows did have a shot, and you'll notice that Albie, Albie, um, he, he, uh, he ended up only only putting the piece in where where the Barlow was getting the using the chillum. So uh, in morning of the earth, um, but yeah, it was uh, it was just. Again, it was like that. Just stuff that was around. It, it just was happening. That's that's what you know. That's what was being done. That's what everyone. That's what the older guys were doing. So I was doing it too. Yeah, it's just a such a foreign concept to someone uh, f- f- more of my vintage who's spent their entire life in Indo, just going fuck this place would be sick if it had pot. Um, but in those days, you could you know strap a garbage bag full of pot to the back of your motorcycle and uh, <laughs> drive it across. Two islands, and uh, that was totally fine. Yeah, well, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's an, it's interesting the way that those guys. That I was su- surprised that, that they went to that extent of trouble. Those guys who, who who did that. That's why I sort of mentioned it. I thought it was like, what are you doing? You're taking yourself out of the surf for, for like two to three days to go and find a bag of pot. I mean, you know, God's sake, there's going to be waves tomorrow. What are you doing? You shouldn't leave. <laughs> uh, and, but at the time, I don't think I knew that they were on their way up there. I only heard the story when they got back. You know? Right. I didn't right. know they were going. I think they just disappeared for a few days. I'm going, where? You know, don't, you shouldn't. Have. Yeah, there's going to be waves. Come on, we'll go surfing. And, you know, so. 
So anyway, yeah, it did happen, and and they uh, and there was pot there, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, but my conception of it is um, in regards to the Barlow smoking pot and introducing it to them. Yeah, that's tricky. I um, I uh, I can't really take any responsibility for that personally because because um, I, I you know. I'm sure that I, I'm sure I didn't. I wasn't the one who introduced pot to them. No, you know doubt I mean? it. You're 15 years old, so yeah, it's <laughs> unlikely. I um, was just in a group. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, it's just a classic scene. I love that scene. I love the soundtrack to it in the film, and uh, the backstory is just a fucking pisser. But um, the film comes out and it fucking blows up. Morning of the Earth, that is. So I don't know if it, it blows up right away, but it does eventually. I mean, it's to this day, it, it's pretty much stands alone i can't even think of a film like it it's a bizarre but amazing and euphoric um art piece as much as a high performance surf film with the best surfers of the time uh, you know what are your memories of morning of the earth being released to the public and uh just what kind of an impact did it have on your life and everyone else's life that was in it yeah it was a slow build for that um a little bit in regards to that because it was being publicized in tracks uh, for a period of time before um, before it was released, um, you know, in, in on the covers and uh, spreads inside, usually of you know mostly uh, film uh, uh, film grabs, you know, like uh, copies of of, of the um, of the film um, of the of the individual um, frames um, that would get blown up and look like you know like like they've been blown blown up too much but um that was that was a that was also typically albi an albi concept that that taking photos off the off the um of the footage and um and and giving them sort of an art effect you know and and he liked he liked that so being the creative director of, of tracks he was he was at liberty to do whatever he wanted and and so he was he was doing that stuff and also promoting the movie um so there was there was a bit of build up in regards to morning of the earth and also in regards to the personalities that were in that were in the film and so we were all starting to feel or those those people that were in the film or what other people had seen uh were starting to feel what was coming you know uh, because it was just the feedback through tracks was was um was you know you could notice it and um uh, but then once it hit the screen, well, then it just it did blow up, and and um, it was very successful, and and you know a lot of people uh, a, a lot of people love it, and you know still going fifty years later. I mean, it, it's it, it's just you know one of, it's just one of the, it's a one of a kind film. I mean, you know, it'd be pretty unusual to see a surf film that would would have that sort of impact across a whole lot of different uh, lifestyles and 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 uh, you know. It's it's surprising how far that got into the the psyche of of even non-surfing community. You know, it, it did have a really big effect. So yeah, after it blew up, it was um, it was it was uh, time to get out of Sydney. <laughs> I, I headed I headed uh, headed first up to the north coast, and then I went work in in town. And, uh, so um, yeah, it was getting getting a bit claustrophobic for me. I'm not particularly good with with crowds and stuff, but um, you know, is that right? So the the uh, reception was such that you became you know a recognisable figure. 
yeah, particularly on the coast and, and in surfing, yeah, yeah. So it was, so it was, um, you know, it was all good feedback. It was all feedback and stuff, you know, like um, they, they were going, wow, man, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's good to hear that, you know, but after a while you, you sort of like you don't need to hear it too much anymore. Like you just think, yeah, well, thanks very much. <laughs> I've got to go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was never, see, growing up with people like Nat and Ted and Wayne and Butch and, you know, I was always taught not to do that to them, you know. It was just, you just didn't do it. You didn't go up and, and pour all over them and say, you know, I love you, man, you're so good. I, you know, what you've done is amazing and all that sort of stuff. That wasn't that wasn't the ethos. It was all very staunch. Where everyone knew who was who the best surfer was. Everyone knew who'd come second. That they all they all knew their place. And and um, but then when Morning of the Earth uh, blew up, it was um, anyone in the film pretty much was was now <laughs> you know um, a recognised figure in in particularly in the close knit surfing community. Wow, that's a real interesting insight. I, yeah, I could only imagine that was the case, but uh, yeah, just far out. <laughs> it's hard to know because surfing was such a cottage, cottage uh, industry back then. Not even an industry yet, but just a tiny little community. Um, yeah. Now, from Morning of the Earth, uh, you know, it's the, pretty much the greatest surf film of all time. You move on to the greatest surfing magazine of all time, um, Tracks Magazine. Uh, what was it like entering the the wide wacky world of tracks for the first time? Oh, uh, yeah, it was another learning curve. I mean, I I, I knew very all I knew from, about the production of magazines was to um, uh, was what I'd seen when I when I visited the, the the then tracks office prior to Morning of the Earth, and and then it was at the same time it was a Surfing World um, office, so it was two magazines being produced and. Um, bunch of really creative people and um and all they were doing you know, what they what their craft was 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 getting publications together so and making films so i knew very little about it but except for what i just observed when i'd spent time there so when i you know when i came to work there it was i had to learn the ins and outs and um and from from the bottom up and um you know and and eventually I did learn that craft and, you know, it's been with me now. Publishing has it's been with me for a long time, you know, and, and it's a very enjoyable thing to do. And, I, you know, it's, it's it, you know, the independent publishers need, need a lot of support. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to preserve a, a craft that, that is slowly being minimised um, and, and, and has no roots at all. It's, it's, it's just created on a computer and, and uh, banged out there. So, yeah, oh, man, it's, cr- it's interesting what you say there about independent publishers needing support. I mean, I'm sure that was uh, definitely a part of what Tracks needed at the start, but in, in your time there, it grew to have an, a circulation of 40,000. And this is in the 1970s when, you know, Australia's population is like, what was it back then, like 15 million or something? So, or 10 million, I don't know, but that's just a fucking... Mm-hmm huge amount of people that it's reaching um you know how do you think it shaped our culture and surfing because it it, again you know it was kind of on a level pegging with rolling stone with um the iconic piss take uh aussie 
magazine Oz, which relocated to London. Um, I'm a big fan of that magazine. But yeah, what sort of an impact did it have on our culture and surfing and, and just the, the times? Well, it was the first of its kind, you know, in regards to surfing, and it was already countercultural. It was it had issues to 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 put across. It was like sand mining and and, and you know ecology and, and all that sort of stuff. And you know, it was a time when everyone started to actually realise that that those sorts of things were important. And so, so tracks tracks became appealing to um, a couple of different areas. Uh, not just surfing it was like it became appealing to the to the, to the music industry um who were also charting that sort of water um was you know the, the the um the revolution you know was on and and so music was part of that and and so um tracks had a wide appeal at its peak around forty thousand. um it was the largest selling under 25 uh, used mag- magazine publication in Australia, and that was very. They got there very quickly, like, and so um, that in itself was a first, and and it was untried, untested newsprint of all things. You would have thought, like, um, you know, there was a lot of glossy magazines, cl- cl- colour magazines on the market, um, but no tracks, mm. and so incredible to be on on that ride with them. Yeah, and but it was. I had to learn very quickly and I had to learn from the base hub. And so it was, it was, you know, good learning. It was a great place to work. Yeah. I mean, you had a, an office there at Whale Beach Wedge. Uh, I just love, I love so many things about it. It cracks me up. Like, you know, you're running Rabbit Bartholomew on the cover naked. You've got this acid freak, Tony Edward, Tony Edwards, just churning out fucking bizarre, incredible um, incredibly detailed gibberish, and then you've got Kerry Packer. Um, basically, you know what, what was his role? He, he ends up publishing it for you because it's just it's so successful and so popular. You get this strook corporate nerd who just can't resist the temptation to get involved with this countercultural behemoth. Um, I mean, I don't know where to where to leave you on that one, but maybe uh, maybe just tell us a bit about. Tony Edwards and Captain Good Vibes, because a lot of our listeners they might not even know what that is. Oh, well, Tony, Tony was Tony was was effectively on some of the like on some of the issues. He was he was uh, regarded as the as creative uh, uh, no, it was a graphic designer or something. Um, so he did he, he was credited as being on the staff, like as a, as a permanent staff member, and his creativity went beyond. Simply his cartoons and his, um, you know, and his nature. Um, it was, you know, he he did he did illustrate a whole lot of stuff in the in the magazine that wasn't as cartoonish. It was it was um, it was it was created for a specific reason to, to say something. And um, and then Captain Good Vibes was created. Well, Tony created Captain Good Vibes, but and he, you know, turned it into a surfing monolith it was just it turned out that that it had a massive following you know and it was unlikely i mean no one expected it um you know it was very outspoken it was it was rude it was you know it was drug oriented it was it was all those things and and um and it was just very very popular and so great great fit for tracks great for circulation great for diversity 
So, yeah, and uh, Tony was just a fantastic guy to, to be around. I, I love Tony. He was fantastic. He was a really nice guy, had a really soft sort of nature um, and very creative. Some of his paintings are just amazing. Yeah. Oh, I can't yeah. imagine what his paintings would look would look like. I mean, it's just bizarre. You got a guy from uh, you know the inner west of Sydney, Balmain, I think it was, and uh, there he is with this. Have, he's had probably the the greatest effect out of any pop artist on surf culture ever uh, in this country. Anyway, with Captain Good Vibes, which was uh, if you haven't seen it, Google it. But uh, you know, it's a it's a pig uh, on a bizarre and uh, hard to you know really piece together surfing quest that takes in all kinds of shenanigans and mate it's it's a pisser it's hilarious um i i just want to touch uh touch quickly on uh you know my favorite story from that period of tracks i uh i did a bit of work experience there and i managed to kind of read an archived edition and it's when phil jarrett meets up with bugs pt and kanga at what was then the, the cool lima um, just after they'd copped a hiding from the Hawaiians all around the busting down the door uh, article and saga. I mean, what was your view of that? What, what was the view of that from the, the tracks office? Like what, what were you guys making of that as all that news was and, and oh. those incredible Jarrett stories were filtering in? Jarrett was a, Jarrett's like a, a news hound. Like he, he, he loves a good story. Like he loves a, he loves a, a particularly controversial one. So, you know, he, he uh, brought a whole different dimension to tracks and and stories like that. He'd go and hunt them down, like he, if he could find something. And uh, going to Hawaii, I don't think was a, was was unintentional. I think I think he probably you know he, he, he probably smelled smelled a story and 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 said to Albie, "Well, listen, I think I better go over there and see what's going on." And he was he was in the midst of it, and um, so. To have a reporter in those days, in the middle of, um, in the, in the middle of, the whole situation, which was becoming a news item, well, it was that was perfect, and so, so tracks pretty much had a, a, a you know, um, first row seat um, to that sort of story, which uh, all it did was, you know, it, it helped, it helped circulation. It was, um, I was, I was, by then, I was sort of more dealing with art with the art and um, advertising parts of the magazine. And so the editorial I didn't get to see until sort of um, and, until we started to lay the magazine out and stuff like that. But there was a lot of buzz in the office. You know, I was, uh, it was always, always a really fun place. There was always something happening that was um, either rude or controversial. So uh, it was a great place to work. And, and Jared played a big part in that. He was good. Mm-hmm. Um, now after tracks, uh, <laughs> things just get weirder and weirder for you, man. I love this story about, uh, somehow you end up chaperoning Hunter S. Thompson around the Eastern suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. Hunter, Hunter, um, Hunter book was booked for a, a book tour, um, by a, 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 a rock, um, a, a rock guy, like a rock promoter or something like that. And, and he, he he got put into like a, a, a I think it was a state theatre or one of those theatres to uh, to do a number of nights talking about a, a, a book and I'm sure it was the where the buffalo runs. This was after he did uh, after he did um, fear and fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Wow. Um, and <laughs> so we I was I was invited to I was invited to that. Um, and was 
you know, given free tickets. So I went, I went, you know, great, I'll go along, you know. And I'd heard of Hunter S. Thompson. I didn't know a lot about him. I wasn't a big reader in the early days. Didn't read books much um, and all that sort of stuff. So I, I didn't really read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but Phil liked him and, he, you know, he was run, run, there was bits running tracks and all that sort of stuff. Um, so uh, my, I had a, a good seat and, um, but then when I got there, because I was, I was there under the tracks banner, um, the promoter came over and said, do you want to come backstage? And this was before the, this was before the event. This was before he started speaking. And uh, so I went backstage and we spent some time just chatting and, you know, stuff before he's, and he was chilling out before we, before he went on stage. And, and, um, and so, yeah, so we just ended up striking up a conversation and he was there. He didn't really like being in the city much. Uh, you know, he didn't like, he didn't want to just hang in George street. Like he just wanted to do some stuff. So um, he said, you know, if you've got some time, let us know and I'll, you know, we'll go, go and have some lunch or something like that. And that turned into, much longer thing where he um, he ended up he ended up we ended up going around the eastern suburbs with him in my old my old hole and that was spray painted blue <laughs> and um, it reminded him as reminded reminded him of a dodge you know because it had some wings on the back so he, he liked that so he took up the back seat um, with his hat and his and his cigarette holder and um, and we chaperoned him around you know took him around the the place and went to lunch with him and did all that. And ultimately, I was split living. I was living at Wild Beach and then uh, travelling to the eastern suburbs. So I, was, I told him we were going back. Out. I was going out to the, the beach and he and he uh, he wanted to come. So I took him with me, and he stayed at the house for a week or so and uh, and just got around. He just I don't know. He just hung out. He was you know he's pretty calm. He, uh, you know, he just hung out and we just sort of chilled and he was happy to see a bit of ocean and, and a bit of sand and, you know, it was, it was, you know, we had fun. He, he, he was a fun guy, so I can't say we didn't. We did have, a, we did have some fun. But um, he, um, ultimately, he's, he's, again, just another character that you sort of, like, you you, you work around and you, and you do a lot of listening and, and then... And have a good time with him, and it's a nice experience. Yeah. Tell me, you got stoned with him? Um, I can't remember if I was smoking too much in those days. Um, um, I didn't. Um, I think there was some coke around, but um, again, I wasn't actually doing that much when he was there. Like I was. Um, I was more, he, I think he just wanted to chill out. So he brought his bag with him, like his doctor's bag. <laughs> yeah. So we had that. So I can only assume that he had something. I mean, I didn't look in the bag, but, um, um, but you know, it, yeah, I was, I was sort of, I was probably drinking more than anything else. And this so, was, um, this would have been after he's written Hell's Angels and copped that brutal hiding from those lads too, right? Maybe, yeah. So not being, not being a, a literate. You know, like not not being in those days. I, I as I say, I didn't read much, and I I wasn't sort of really up on on the events and all that sort of stuff. Um, I didn't really get into those sort of subjects with him, so I didn't really discuss all that stuff with him. And with celebrities, and the same thing with 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 
famous surfers and stuff like that, a lot of them just are happy not to talk about that shit. They just, they just oh. like to chill out and, and get away from it for a while. I think that was Hunter's Hunter's go with when, when he came out yeah, came out there. Gets even so, weirder though. It gets weirder because then Bill Murray flies out to Sydney basically to get maggot with you to pick up some yeah. tips on how to play him in a movie. Like what kind of what kind of uh, character was old mate Murray? He loved surfing too. He ended up going to G Land and shit with uh with Boyum and, he did. and, and John and John Ogden, the publisher, um, was there with him. He he went to G Land with him. Yeah. Wow. That's bizarre. Yeah, so that's an interesting, you know, twist. Yeah, so that was that was I think I'm pretty sure that that was the same year that he was in Australia when he came to see us. Um, so he did, he linked up with me because he had a phone number from Hunter, um, and and um, he also linked up with with um, Phil Jarrett. Uh, but. His main thing was to try and get out of character. That's he was he was, he was his character actor, and he um, he was playing the part of Hunter S. Thompson. So he's he's having trouble staying in the states and um, and trying to shake that that persona because he knew he had to because <laughs> um, you know he just needed to. And uh, so he, he he found me and uh, we went you know we went and had did a lot of drinking did a lot of drinking with him and you know. He, uh, he, 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 um, he, he, yeah, Bill, Bill turned up and, and he, um, when I first saw him, I, I went to the boulevard, um, and met him on the, on the you know, 17th floor or whatever it was where the restaurant was and the top floor. And, um, and I, he asked me to meet him at the bar and this is like about 10 o'clock in the morning and he's, um, and I, I sit there, there's no one in the restaurant. Or very few people in the restaurant, and um, he um, he walked. He came in after I arrived and out of the lift, and um, he took this run and and uh, did a, a tumble roll, and landed on the seat on his bum. He didn't use his hands. He did a tumble roll, landed on the seat next to me, and put his hand out to shake my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and. I don't know how he knew I was who I was because he, he we'd never met. Uh, but he goes, Steve, Bill Murray, yeah. So he just guessed because I was the only one at the bar. It had to be me, I suppose. <laughs> oh, that's classic. That is too good. Um, yeah, so funny. And then, any, anyway, we spent some time fun. It was fun time, but it is a it is an interesting, you know, segue to outfit from um, Hunter. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It, it meant, eventually, I think he shook it. I think by the time he got to garage in with John, I think it. Um, I think he probably shook the persona. So wait, so he's coming to you to get tips to play Hunter S. Thompson, or to try and get out of being Hunter S. Thompson? Trying to get his his character, trying to get Hunter's character out of his system. What? Uh, because people, when they play those roles, you know, they find it difficult to shake sometimes. You know. And I think when there's other influences around, like, yeah, like, you know, self medication and those sorts of things hanging around, it probably makes it harder. So he probably had to just, you know, go and do some time out and stuff. But mm. yeah, Speaking we also of- took we also took Bill to um to a pajama party of uh, my my future wife's. Uh, uh, she'd invited me to a, a, a slumber party. I mean a. a, a a pajama party at 
where she was living. And um, that was great. He turned up, turned up in pajamas, like in just pajamas, and sort of decided to have had a lot of fun in the party. You know, it was great, and um, you know, it was a, a terrific night. So he, he ended up. He didn't seem to be too much in Hunter's persona or not like that. He was, he was just like pretty cool. Yeah. So um, yeah. So good fun. What a strange concept, getting trapped in someone else's personality. It's, I mean, they'd have a thousand different names for that if you saw a shrink today. But, yeah, that, that's wild. In those days, it was just called, uh, yeah, I guess you just came and got pissed with Steve if you wanted to uh, forget about who you were. Well, not just me. He got, pissed with, he got pissed with a few people. And, they, uh, you know, they all had similar stories to tell. But I'm just, I'm adding, I'm adding it to mine. It's yeah. <laughs> too good. And, uh, mate, uh, just talk about self-medicating. I mean, in those days, like, uh, you know, you had some really hard drugs that were just decimating the surf scene, or at least that did my, my hometown, Bondi, um, you know, it was in pretty close proximity to the cross and just a bit of a, yeah, it was a bit of a shooting, uh, just fuck, it was a, a lame duck really when it came to heroin, it destroyed a lot of lives. Was, was it an issue, uh, you know, for, for you or anyone you were close to? Uh you know, as you say, that period was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was like a, it was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of drugs around. It was, you know, it was something that the musicians were into, the surfers were into it. Um, you know, you know, the, the, there's a lot of people who who um, who didn't see the end of it. And um, yeah, like during that period, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't really too fast. I was, I was like, um, I'd seen a lot by the time I was, you know, by, by, by then, uh, I'd seen people shooting up. I vowed never to do that myself. Um, I'd, um, I'd seen people, well, I hadn't watched people die, but I, 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 I knew people who, who did die because of, because of the over, overindulgence. So I was a bit, I was a bit skeptical. I was a bit sort of, I kept. Um, I tried to, to keep it as clean as I could. I mean, I um, I had you know I, I was I was heading towards um, I was heading towards a son and a, and a and a and a a wife. You know, so I um, it probably it, it it probably helped <laughs> it probably helped having a responsibility. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah, that'll keep your nose clean. Uh, I mean, your life. It just has so many chapters to it, and it's what makes this book so interesting. Like, it, there's just, like I said, weird twists and turns that you don't see coming. Um, but I'm really interested, just before I let you go, uh, to know a bit more about your, your kind of uh, your dalliance with fashion. Um, you know, because this ends up becoming a real quintessentially Northern Beaches kind of thing. So, uh, the way I see it, it's like, you know, you're, you're kind of the first from the the core surf world to venture into fashion but then uh one of your son's mates aussie Wright, ends up you know deep in the same world you've got subi you've got insight um the goro brothers and all that uh, all, all based out of the northern beaches avalon uh you know similar uh, stomping grounds to yourself um yeah tell us a bit about how you got involved in that world and, and you end up fuck i mean of course being you you don't just end up in fashion world you end up in fashion week in uh Paris and Milan, uh, you know, <laughs> it's about as far from Granville and uh, Collaroy, uh, you know, living in a fucking yeah, it is a bit, isn't it? Yeah, a, a flogged boarding house in Collaroy as you can get. Well, I got, I, I had a bit of a, an intro to fashion working in the joinery, 
it was it was effectively the first January in Sydney, um, and and so it was all new and lovely and working with beautiful people and you know doing all that. So fashion, I started to get a bit of an you know they were giving me clothes and stuff, so I was starting to wear pretty good clothes while I was while I was doing that job. That flowed onto tracks. I was I was wearing like when I say good clothes, like really good jeans and you know shirts and things like that, which I you know I never used to wear, but I, I started wearing shirts and things like that. And a lot of people did, you know, and even people on the northern beaches, you know, it was it was like they were becoming quite fashionable. Um, and the the lady I was I was living with at the time, she had this thing in her head. She she came from the from the city. Uh, but was living at Wild Beach with me, and she she wanted to do a shop over at uh, over at um, over in Wallara because uh, that's where her grounding was, and um, and she had a lot of experience with fashion. So you know, oh, yeah, well, okay, you know, um, I wasn't that keen on it, but it ended up happening, and then and then we started to do you know runway shows and and doing our own collections and. Um, selling wholesale as well as in the shop and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, it was almost like a natural progression. The, the, the idea was to go to go to the Pret-a-Porte shows in, um, in Milan, uh, pick up ideas and also pick up some nice cheap Italian clothing, just stuff in your bag and bring it back and put it in the shop. So <clears throat> that was the plan and that's that's what happened. I, I went and uh, Shoved a whole lot of stuff in my luggage and uh, flew back with it, and <laughs> and um, you know from a from a, a, a pretty reputable guy. I mean Kenzo Jap, I'd, you would never have heard of him, but he was in the day. He was like up there. He was like really a noted um, high end fashion guy, and um, and so yeah, so that that all worked out quite well. But uh, why they chose me to go over there, I, I got absolutely no idea. I mean, I wasn't that that skilled at it, I would have thought that someone else would have been better to do it. But they sent me and I went over there and saw the saw these saw the shows. Um, and you know, the shows were great. The uh, well they treated you like royalty if you you know you come from Australia, you go and they go and sit you down and put you in private suites, show you all the show you all the dresses and give you something to drink and then and then off you go. And uh, and if you buy something, you buy something. If you don't, you don't. You know, the Italians are great like that. They don't care. Were you tripping out? Were you just like, you, I find it hard to believe uh, just some of the transitions in your life. You know, you, you're up there on the cliff at Ulu's drinking warm Fanta, uh, the first ever surf that. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, you're, you're in Milan drinking ice cold champagne and eating caviar in a private suite while some uh, catwalk models parade in front of you. Yeah, looking back on it, it's sort of, it all happened pretty quickly, but a lot of things in my life happened early. Um, you know, it's pretty easy for me to say that because they did. You know, the, it was all that drama, and then then it's like my age of surfing was not. I started surfing at nine, which was in those days very early. Um, so I grew up pretty quickly, and um, and because I came from the city, I had a few street smarts, and I was a bit savvy and. You know, I was out for a bark. You know, ultimately, you know, anything that can improve my situation. And so I just sort of went in some directions that were particularly rated, you know, related to surfing. But with a means to an end. I mean, at the end of the day, I still, you know, 
my entire life, all I've ever wanted to do is go surfing. And um, um, it's just a matter of whether the, the timing's right, whether you've got enough money, whether you're, whether you're in the right location. It, it's all that sort of stuff. It's logistics. And um, if there's some ways to, to, to make that happen, well, then I'd give it a shot. And the sound of going to Milan was, <clears throat> I'd never been to Milan. I thought, well, let's have a look. And the Italians were great. They're fantastic people. So, yeah, had a good trip. All you had to do was uh, avoid getting caught up in a skirmish between the, the commie rebels and the, the fucking local cops. Yeah, the Red Brigade. They, yeah, they were, they were trashing the streets when I was there. Like, and the, the place, Milan, was, was in curfew. You weren't allowed to go out at, and after a certain hour. So if you got caught in a restaurant and, um, and you overstayed, you weren't allowed to go home. So you weren't allowed to go back to your hotel suite. You had to stay at the restaurant. And so all the restaurants had, like, um, <coughs> the family always had a spare room out the back. Because I know this because I actually got caught. I got, I got stuck in a restaurant um, with this Italian family and, and they just kept going. Like, they just wanted to rock on with the Aussie, you know, and, and they loved to hear me talk. So I was just talking to them because I was there on my own. So to get some company was great and they loved me and, you know, for my accent. And so I ended up spending the night, uh, you know, in, in I had to stay the night, so basically, so in, in the, in, at the residence of the, of the restaurant. And then I, had, and I got, back to, got, got back to the hotel for breakfast. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There's a, and finally, I mean, there's a pretty infamous though, well-known chapter of your life that you, you didn't include in the book. Um, I mean, we don't have to talk about it here, but uh, what was the decision there? Um, so I guess I, I have to ask that question because people will ask that question to me. Let me put it this way. If, if people are that interested, put up some cash and I will, I will do another book and uh, that'll, be, that'll be number two. I like the sound of that, Steve. Yeah. Because there's a, you know, remember this book ends when I'm in my early 20s. Yeah. So, and I'm now 66. So, who knows? You know, we might have another chat at another time. <laughs> I love it. Bring it on. We'll, uh, we'll find some money for that somewhere. Some, we'll shake some trees because <laughs> I, I want to hear what, uh, I want to hear what happened in that chapter. But, uh, mate, thank you so much for your time. It's an incredible book. Uh, where can we get it? Uh, you can get it at uh, um, uh, uh, Cosmic uh, Cyclops Productions. Cyclops, sorry, yeah, Cyclops Productions um, website. website, and it's um, and it's available on that on that website online. Um, and there are there are a number of bookshops, um, and uh, you know if you if you want to know that you could probably email. Uh, uh, Cyclops production. Too easy, yeah. We'll unearth the story of one kid's surf journey. Steve Cooney, fucking iconic, mate. It's a, been a wild ride for you. So uh, thanks for sharing it with us. <laughs> thanks for your time, Jed. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>